Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. My guest today is Dr. Joel Mudamale, who is uh, the Director of Theology and Research for Proverbs 31 Ministries. He also has a PhD in the New Testament under Drs. Pat- Patrick Schreiner and Michael Heiser, with an emphasis on Paul's household language in Ephesians, which is the foundation of our conversation today. We began talking about the end of Ephesians, where Paul uses household language to describe the multi-ethnic kingdom of God that he is forming. Um, and we go back into the Old Testament roots of that passage, and that spills over into a conversation about uh, what it means to be a multi-ethnic church. And then we end with a um, with a conversation about who is the better all-time basketball player, Michael Jordan or LeBron James. So come for the theology, stay for the basketball. Please welcome to the show for the first time, Dr. Joel Mutamani. Joel, we've been connecting offline for a bit now, and uh, finally we are here on the podcast. So thanks for coming on Theology in the Thanks, Preston. Super excited to, to be on here. Give us just a quick background of who you are, how you got into scholarship, your journey, and uh, kind of what you're up to these days. For me, my journey, I, if you can hear me, uh, you might not be able to tell, but if you see me, I'm Indian. Uh, and so I, my grandparents are missionaries in India. Some of my earliest memories are of my grandfather uh, preaching the gospel in India in rural villages um, with a class of people called untouchables. Um, so really, I think, blessed to be able to have a strong heritage um, in the faith. And, and seeing the gospel at play, you know, uh, in my life. And so um, part of just my journey has been trying to figure out what God wants of me and 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 how I relate in different places. I've always felt like I never really quite fit in. Uh, I have a joke when I came, uh, I was born in the Chicagoland area. So uh, I grew up watching Michael Jordan win the three-peat repeat the three-peat, an incredible time to grow up in the city of Chicago. And I found um, that the church really was the place where I felt welcomed. Um, It was the place where um, I was seen uh, in some ways. There were parts of me that were seen. It's real complicated. Parts of me were seen. Other parts of me were not seen. And just kind of led me down a road of what does the Bible actually say about my ethnicity? What does the Bible say about Joel as an Indian who um, is a child of an immigrant that was uh, born in the States but lived the first two and a half years in India and then came back? Uh, All of those questions. And so I ended up going to Bible college. I'm a theological mutt. I did an undergraduate degree at a Pentecostal charismatic uh, Bible college in Sacramento, California. Um, I went to go work for Logos Bible Software. And while I was working for them, I ended up doing um, going to seminary at Knox Theological Seminary, which is a Presbyterian spot. I have done the gamut of the theological uh, world. I think I just need to go the Anglican route and then I'll have hit everything. <laughs> PhD was at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. And so underneath uh, Dr. Patrick uh, Schreiner, who's my first reader, and then my second reader is Dr. Michael Heiser, who's an um, Old Testament scholar. Uh, and I did my dissertation, uh, kind of my journey. My dissertation was on um, Paul's household themes in Ephesians. As I was taking a look at Ephesians 2, 18 through 22, and kind of Paul's language um, of uh, the foreigners coming in and um, this construction of this living uh, living temple, um, I kind of was like, man, where where is he drawing this imagery, this architectural imagery, um, the language, where is this coming from? A lot of commentaries when we're reading, uh, initially, it's all talking about a Greco-Roman kind of background. Interestingly, I think it was Marcus Bart was like the only person I found in my lit review that has this like little passing sentence, you know, it's like, and, and Paul's, Paul's got Babel as a, as a background and then he moves right on from it, you know? And I was like, wait a minute, I think there's more to this. You know, when did there first become a Jew-Gentile distinction? Um, when, you know, what is the actual roots of uh, of this text? And for me, I, I really found it in Genesis 11. And I looked at Genesis 10, the Table of Nations, Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, and then Genesis 12, which is obviously the Abrahamic covenant. Um, and really, Dr. Heiser really helped me kind of fill in some gaps, because typically, like, we're reading Genesis 10, 11, and 12, and and kind of just moving on. But the aftermath of the consequence of Genesis 11, uh, the, the tongues are, are diversified, all the people kind of spread out. Um, it actually has Deuteronomy 32, 8 through 9, the, um, the sons of God um, that were allotted to the nations. There's a disinheritance of Yahweh of the nations, and then he uh, keeps Jacob as his allotment. And so really, Deuteronomy 32, 8 through 9 is the aftermath of Genesis 11, and this is the Jew-Gentile distinction. 
distinction. This is where we get the gods of the nations in the Old Testament. And so for me, it was kind of like, wait a minute. Uh, I actually think Paul is drawing from Babel as a background text. And he's got this Deuteronomy 32, 8 through 9 worldview that's in play because he's got the language of the powers and the principalities and the authorities. So there's this cosmic reality that's taking place that involves both God's human family um, as well as these um, supernatural beings that are present. And so these are interrelated and interconnected, not separated and demarcated, which I think often, um, at least in my context, we, we try to keep those in their tight, neat little corners. The supernatural beings, it makes me think of um, Ephesians 3.10, that kind of climactic moment where Paul's been talking about Jew-Gentile stuff now for two chapters at least. I would even go back at the end of chapter one, the fullness of God. Um, But chapter two, for sure. And then into chapter three, Paul talking about his specific mission to to the Gentiles. And it comes to this climactic moment so that um, the wisdom of God might be manifested to the yeah the multifaceted wisdom of God yeah yeah and the word multifaceted is the is the same word that's used in the Septuagint of Joseph's Joseph's robe of many colors it's um it's got this concept of the uh, the ethnicities of the world it's it's a multi-flowered yeah. kind of ideology that's present there as well I mean it's all over the place Preston it's in Ephesians one uh, like one let's see twenty through twenty one this is the ascension this is a lot of uh, Shriner's work you know. Um, it says that Christ was raised far above every ruler, authority, power, and dominion over every title given, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he subjected everything under his feet. And then in two one, according to the ruler of the power of the air. So uh, before we even get into the the building of this beautiful temple in, in Ephesians 2, um, we get the scene that's being established of this cosmic reality. And what are these supernatural beings aimed at? Uh, they're aimed at disrupting and creating chaos and division and disunity uh, and, and keeping the people of, of God away from each other uh, and, a, and apart. And so when you have the ascension of Christ that brings all of the powers subjected underneath Christ and really disarms the, the evil powers, uh, then in Ephesians 2, 18 through 22, it's talking about how we are no longer foreigners and strangers. You know, we're fellow citizens. We're members of the um, oikos tauteo, the house household of God. Um, and it's really interesting because it's like, okay, what's happening in Babel in Genesis 11? So Genesis 10, it's everybody's got lands, languages, and cultures. You know, you got the table of nations that's, that's present there. This is kind of like my train of thought as everything was going. Um, then we get to Genesis 11 and it's like, and then there's one language. Well, wait a minute. <laughs> do you have many languages or do you have one language? Like, how, how, how is this possible? So I'm Indian. Uh, in India, the, the main language is Hindi. There's this concept called the lingua franca, you know? And it's like, the, I'm a Tolkien um, uh, fan, so it's like the one language to rule them all, the one ring to rule them all. So it's like, you can speak Hindi and you can really get around anywhere. But if you go from village to village, they'll have their own dialect. Like they're gonna have their own um, their own language, and it's it's very intimate. It's very personal to them, and so I think it's very possible that you have the presence of both diversity. Uh, and unique cultural expression in Genesis chapter 10, but you also have one common language that's actually knitting all the people together so they can um, talk and they can, uh, you know, go out about their work and what they're trying to do and what they're trying to achieve. The problem with Genesis 11 is that they go into full-on rebellion. Um, The commission out of Eden is to go out into the ends of the earth, spread the image of God to the ends of the earth, and instead what they do is they try to build a ziggurat temple tower, you know, and in building this temple tower at the very top and we've got archaeological evidence of this, at the very top of the temple would have been a chamber, a a room for the deity to come down. And so instead of going out into the world to spread the image of God into the ends of the earth, uh, the people try to force God's hand and force him to come down. Uh, It's an act of of total rebellion. And they use bricks and mortar and they try to um, use human uh, creativity and ingenuity in order to accomplish this task. And as a result, result, Yahweh is like, nah, <laughs> like this is, this is not going to happen. And then he comes down and he, and he uh, diversifies their tongues. They're like, now here's what's interesting. Then where do they go? 
They go back to what they knew in Genesis 10. They all had a common language and a common tongue. It's like, well, if I can't speak um, Spanish, if I can't speak Russian, uh, and that was like, like, you know, that was the language that connected all of us. Well, I'm going to go back to Hindi. That's the only language that I'm going to find the other people that speak Hindi. And then that's how they all kind of connect back together. And so there's this diversification that took place. We've got this reversal, but I don't think it's purely a reversal. I actually think it's a redemptive reinstitution in uh, at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Because what happens mm-hmm. is when the Spirit of God comes down, which again is interesting, right? In Genesis 11, they're trying to force God to come down by their own means. Here in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, the Spirit of God does come down. It's, it's the aim and the ambition, um, but it's being done as an empowerment, as a fulfillment of prophecy. And when the Spirit comes down, I think it's wild that you've got the list of nations in Acts 2. Well, if you laid them out geographically, this is the same geographical locations that are present in Genesis 10 in the table of nations. Hmm. So you've got this throwback that's happening. And then on top of it, it's like, man, if I were the Holy Spirit, I really feel like I'm, I would be after efficiency and, and, and being like quick, you know, being productive. It's a good thing that I'm not the Holy Spirit. It's like, why doesn't the Holy Spirit just use... Greek or Aramaic as the language that uh, translates out to everything else. Why is the text so specific in Acts 2 that everybody wondered, they marveled because they heard the gospel in a beautiful way the very first time intimately in their own native tongues, you know? And, and for me, it was like, man, God cares about their culture. God cares about their ethnicity. He cares about their background. Your ethnicity is not obliterated. When you walk into the family of God, it's actually celebrated. How kind and how gracious of Yahweh to actually see the very first time you would hear the good news of the gospel, it would be in that familial, native, comfortable language that brings back all these great memories. It's like, my wife is white, I'm Indian. Whenever we watch Bollywood videos or movies and something funny happens and I have the unfortunate task of translating the joke from one language to another, the second I try to, it's it's not funny. <laughs> it's not funny anymore, you know? Um, and yeah. so you have that taking place and then you get to, uh, to Ephesians 2, 18 through 22. And this is what Paul's talking about. The dividing wall of hostility is broken down, that we're no longer foreigners and strangers. We're uh, fellow citizens. And now I think it's fascinating. Instead of the the temple being built by bricks and mortars, here in Ephesians 2, 18 through 22, the temple is actually being built. It's a living and growing temple. And this living and growing temple is being built. The building blocks are the nations of the world the ethnos of the world. And and I just thought that, man, that is such a a beautiful reflection of what's taking place at uh, at Babel and seeing it being reversed, but also redeemed and reinstituted of going back to the ideal of God of saying, yes, we have many cultures, we have many nations, we've got many ethnicities. um, And these things should be celebrated, you know, when you walk into the family of God, not obliterated. So really, this is a grand story of God having his family back together. So it's when you say it's not a reversal of Babel, it is a reinstitution of Babel by integrating the different ethnic expressions languages yeah. rather than those ethnic expressions and languages being a result of the sin of Babel. Exactly. Would... Yeah, yeah, exactly. So okay. I want to see Babel in light of Genesis 10 and saying like all these people migrate to the plains of Shinar and they want to build a ziggurat temple, but they already had the diversity of languages, but they had one common language. And so the consequence of rebellion at Babel is the loss of the one common language. In Acts 2, you you almost regain that that connectivity, the Holy Spirit does it, but the Holy Spirit does it through knitting their multi-languages together through an understanding, through common understanding. And then in Ephesians 2, you've got the same architectural kind of language that's taking place. The foreigners, those that are on the outside, come together and they're building the temple. And instead of um, it being bricks and mortars, it's the nations of the world that are coming together to, to build this temple. And so you've got this sense that um, it's not a doing away way. Um, but it's actually like a returning to the ideal of how God intended for the nations to live and interact and, and to be in a relationship with each other, which is messy. It's not clean, you know, and we want it to be clean. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I want to get some of the practical stuff. Cause I know you're, you're, I mean, you're heavily in, you know, on the leadership of, of one of the largest multi-ethnic churches in, in America, I, I believe. Um, 
a really good one. Well, I'm curious about the the image of of Babel in particular because Babel does take on you know Babel becomes the place of Babylon and Babylon is code for Rome and this kind of negative empire. Does is that in is that is there any is that kind of a different conversation from what you're you're exploring in, in your dissertation yeah, or does that yeah. relate the kind of negative image that Babel in particular takes on? Yeah, actually. So then you get to Gen- Genesis 12. You get to Genesis 12 with Abraham. Abraham is from Ur of the Chaldeans. He makes a pit stop in um, Haran, you know, and it's like, well, where is he? So it's like uh, <laughs> out of the epicenter, this is the same geographical locations of Babel, you know? So out of the epicenter of rebellion, these people have gone into rebellion. Out of the epicenter of rebellion in Genesis 12, God uh, in his kindness, he actually picks a family out of the rebellious pl- this place and calls them to himself, calls Abram to himself, and then gives the Abrahamic covenant that all the nations of the world will be blessed um, through him, you know? And so uh, Babel is the archetype archetype of, um, of the enemy, of rebellion, of sin, uh, and yet God steps in and redeem something out of that to be a vision of what the family of God ought to look like. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It almost has, it almost, I don't know, just thinking out loud here, it almost relates to the, the idea in the New Testament of, you know, the church as a multi-ethnic community being almost an, an, an alternative polis, an alternative community, an alternative kingdom to, you know, the Babel of the day, the Babylon of the day, um, namely Rome. Um, Kind of like embodying what Babel was supposed to be all along, but failed to do. I, I don't. Yeah, think. yeah. I think it's like um, I think it was N.T. Wright uses the language of signposts. You know, um, it's like missional outposts, and it's like it's it's that same idea. It's we're a, a visible witness to the already but not yet kingdom of God that gives people a vision of how how we ought to live in relationship to each other as image bearers of God. And so like, you know, I know this is a lot of the work that you've done, Preston, but it's like, how do we, how do we live as sojourners and strangers in a land that is not our own? And, and yet second Corinthians five, we're faithful ambassadors of the, of the kingdom without, um, without buying into Babel as being uh, our home and our hope. And so that that requires a lot of work and, and intentionality, you know, or, around that. Um, so yeah, I think all all that is taking place. You sound like Derwin there. <laughs> I, could, I, I love yeah his view on kind of the kingdom of God and politics is just so spot on. I think. Um, well, tell us about. So you've done a lot of theological, biblical spade work on God's heart for a multi for a multi ethnic kingdom. You're also been heavily involved in a church that's trying to live that out. How, how does that work? I mean, what are some of the the messy? What's the messiness? What are some of the huge wins when you pursue a multi ethnic kind of um, kingdom? Well, a multi ethnic church as an expression of the kingdom. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what does it look like on the ground? It's hard. It's hard, you know, like I think sometimes on the outside, it's like, oh man, must be so much fun. Like uh, this is thriving multi-ethnic church and y'all are crushing it, and Derwin's doing phenomenal work and he's writing these books and I get to be a part of the teaching team and it's a lot of fun, uh, but it's a lot of grind in the sense of, um, I think it would be nice if it's just like, I don't know, we just woke up one day and everything was was perfect. Like everything was growing, that we didn't have challenges, um, which I think a lot of people would feel like that. But I actually, I'm working on a book that releases in 2024. And in it, I have this section where I talk about the George Floyd um, kind of situation. And, and as racial um, injustice has just skyrocketed, actually three years ago on Thanksgiving, um, right around Thanksgiving, one of my cousins uh, was on campus at UIC and she was assaulted and murdered in the in the parking garage um, and I remember I remember that day uh, I actually called Derwin and I was like just 
in dev like just devastated she had left um campus she was off campus that night helping high school students that wanted to go into like a pre-med program that she was a part of um so she was dressed up in a in a nice dress and so she got off at the bus stop and um she walked by a bus stop and there's a guy there and he just kind of cat called her now i've got a sister i've got a little girl who turned three actually today pressing on valentine's day um and so it's like what do you do when a guy cat calls you it's like you ignore him and you just move on. You know, that's kind of like the common, the common idea there. And she did that. She ignored him, moved on. And he took that, uh, really negatively and followed her into a parking garage. And it just like our, our world changed, you know, it actually made the news. It, it was pretty bad, but I remember calling Derwin and just sobbing and he was just pastoring me through it. And then the thing that I said to him was one of the most, tra the other tragic aspect of it is the man that murdered her was black. And so a lot of times racism or racial kind of tension is left in the conversation between black and white. And I, as an Indian, I'm just going to say, well, that's not true. There's actually racial tension between the black and Indian communities, between the Latino and black communities. And so um, for, for Indians, the way that it's kind of played out, and I'm not going to say it for everybody, I can just say for my experience personally, the way that it played out is like, man, we don't want to get into the racial discussion, the racial talk, because then we might be implicit in it. We might get caught up in this mess. So it's better to just keep quiet, <laughs> you know, and let them figure out their stuff. And I just remember talking to Derwin that day about this and just talking about how this type of situation reinforces that ideology, you know, and, and, and that horror. And so sitting in a small group uh, at TC where we've got... Uh, multiple ethnicities, mul multiple people that are mixed race. My kids are half Indian and half white. Um, and having to navigate through that, what does that look like? Um, how do we move past this? And how is it possible for the good news of the gospel of Jesus, the Messiah, who, you know, we talked about Ephesians 2, who broke down the dividing wall of hostility for us to overcome something like this and to move past it. And, and not really that we move past it, but we move forward into the hope um, that Jesus can knit us still together. And so it's been messy. It's been messy as we've, as we've navigated that. Um, another example is sitting in a small group and we're, we're I remember one of my uh, friends, he's black. And uh, he was like, man, I had to have the talk the other day. <laughs> and we're all in a big group, right? And and it was just kind of funny. And I was like, I kind of instantly knew what he was talking about. And a couple of the white dads were like, oh, no, like, how'd you guys do like the, the birds and the bees? You know, like, that's, that's, that's a lot. And, uh, and my buddy was like, what? <laughs> he was like, nah, bro, nah, bro. Like we already had that a long time ago. I'm talking about when the cops pull you over <laughs> and they were like, what? What are you? And it, and this is messy. You know, this is, this is the part of discipleship. And, and I think Paul's language of one another, it's a, there's a reciprocity of relationship that says, listen, I have to, like my responsibility as a lover of Jesus and as a brother or sister in Christ is to invite you into my story. So that as I invite you into my story, my story actually takes root into your life so that you can relate to it in a way that if I didn't invite you, it would be foreign to you, you know? And so he kind of walked through like why it's so important for him, for him to teach his son like, what do you do when, when a police officer pulls you over and what are the things you want to be thinking about and what are the things you don't want to do and, and just the realities of that. And then I explained to them, you know, I've got three boys, um, that are all different shades of Brown. You know, my oldest is super light. My middle son is, is darker. And my youngest son, my mom calls her, um, her Indian baby, you know, cause he's super dark like me. And I'm like, man, in, in that situation, each of them, have different responses and different ways to kind of think about that. It just gets more complex. And it was one of the most beautiful scenes. These, these two uh, dads who are white, they were just in tears, absolute tears. And we're like, Hey, is everything okay? Like what's going on? And, um, and they go, we finally realized that we have to have the talk. And I was like, what are you talking about? You have to have the talk. Like, that's kind of odd. You know, I wasn't even thinking through the implication. And he goes like, our sons are friends with your sons. What, what if they're in the car with them? Like, how should oh, wow. they? And I was just like, wow, 
this is the this is the family of God working through some really messy and difficult conversations, but the power of one another. If I can invite you into the reality of my story and allow you to see um, like where are the things that are really painful, but also hopeful, and then um, hear from you as you process through it, I think it's a really, really beautiful thing um, that that builds out of it. And that's the journey that I've had at TC. That's the journey I think that that we're walking through. Is it's not um, it's not quick by any means, but like in the words of Eugene Peterson, it's it's really a long uh, obedience. You know, it's it's an endurance towards the direction of Jesus um, that we want to uh, partner with our brothers and sisters of different ethnicities, called and including gender. You know, this doesn't this isn't just uh, of ethnic or cultural. I'm talking about even women as well, and and the challenges in our society um, that have come up in regard to that. And so it's been a journey for sure. This episode is sponsored by Faithful Counseling. Look, life can be super challenging, filled with ups and downs, times of joy and times of sorrow. And so it's important for us to be spiritually and mentally healthy. Faithful Counseling will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist who's a practicing Christian. This isn't a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's professional counseling done securely online. So you can log into your account anytime and send a message to your counselor. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you don't have to be on camera if you don't want to. Faithful Counseling is more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. We all need to talk to somebody and Faithful Counseling can help. Uh, you can go to the website and read the testimonials. For instance, I read one reviewer who said that his counselor is, quote, a great counselor that truly listens. He gives you the space to talk through your emotions and provides concrete solutions and action steps to help you improve your mental health. So visit faithfulcounseling.com forward slash theology and get the professional faith-based counseling that you deserve. Theology and our listeners will get 10% off your first month by going to faithful counseling.com forward slash theology. We have about three teenage daughters and um, I feel like it's been such a learning curve for me, just, just taking for granted. I mean, this is similar to some of the race conversations you're talking about, like taking for granted my individual experience in society and not recognizing that not everybody has the same liberties or freedoms or privileges or whatever term you want to use by virtue of you know, my identity as a white man, for instance, you know, I, I've never thought about my safety going on a long run, you know, it's a hot day out, I'll go out, take my shirt off, just got, you know, my shorts on, I'll run anywhere. I, I remember running in, this might not have been the wisest, but in uh, downtown Kathmandu in Nepal, I was on jet lag, got up at four in the morning, pitch black out, and I was running through the town, it was brilliant, brilliant, you know, it was so much fun. And like you talk to women, they're like, no, every time I go on a run, I'm deeply thinking about my safety. Don't oh, I can't run there. I can't wear this. Can't do that. Can't can't. There's so many like so many things to think about before I just go on a run because I <laughs> I don't have the freedom of just going out with my shirt off or sports bra and yoga pants or whatever. Like I yeah, I could, couldn't go in a dark city like in the middle of mor- late morning and just go on a long run without even just with my headphones in, like, no, I can't do that. Like, right. It's not a thing. You know, just, and that's just, that's a minor example, but just, if you, if you just live in an echo chamber or people that just look and act like you, or just don't, don't even ask it questions. You don't recognize the, the beautiful complexity of the diverse experiences that people have. This is kind of how I'm processing it. I, I'm curious for you w- with the race conversation, what, what as an Indian American what are some unique um, forms of, I don't know, prejudice or even racism that you experience that maybe even people of other ethnicities don't experience? I don't think I've ever asked anybody that before. Yeah, you know, I, I have I have some of this stuff. I'm, I'm actually, it's funny that you asked that. Uh, I'm writing some of this stuff down. And part of this, like, 
Preston, I realized like I was traumatized as a kid. I didn't even know that it was trauma, you know, like I was like, I'm going through therapy right now. Like I've been going through therapy for a while. I get to do this podcast series called Therapy and Theology with the licensed um, therapist and it's super fun. And halfway through, I'm like, man, I need, I need to really unpack these parts of my childhood that I didn't realize were so significant. So, so here's one of them. Um, I grew up in Chicago. I love playing basketball and um, all of my friends were either black or Latino at, at this time. Like we uh, lived lived in this area that was, um, pr- like closer to the hood, you know? Um, and so <laughs> I went out and it's like, I'm Indian. Like I've, I'm short, dude. I've got everything going against me at this point. So I got to have mad handles. So I'm like, listen, I'm going to perfect this behind the back, like crossover thing. And, uh, and the worst feelings to be the last one picked on the court. And it happened to me all the time. So like, I've got to figure this out. So I remember going out there and I perfected this behind the back crossover and these kids were out there and I crossed this kid over and it was awesome. It was like slow motion, you know, and you just feel like you're Michael Jordan just crushing it. And all of a sudden I heard to the side, like just, it was almost like slow motion too. I heard this yell and somebody yelled, yo, the Hindu crossed you over. And I was like, who's the Hindu? And I kind of looked around trying to figure out who, and then I realized like they're talking about me, you know? So there's no there was no understanding that Hinduism is a religion, that mm. all Indians are not Hindu, that there's actually different types of Indians that have different types of like, like I literally just got labeled. And, and the thing is, is at that point, I was just like, I didn't know what to say. And if I tried to defend myself, I might get beat up. So I'm not trying to get beat up out here. So what do you do? You go with it. <laughs> you just go with it. For the rest of that year, my nickname was Hindu. I wore it like a badge around, you know, without realizing that deep inside that it actually was a, was a traumatic kind of experience for me because I'm not Hindu. I'm a Christian, you know. Um, and and so like that's that's just one example. The other one is like The Simpsons. The The Simpsons was like a really challenging show, I think, for a lot of Indians because it's like. Well, everybody, if you're like, I used to get asked all the time, hey, uh, Joel, can we go to your 7-Eleven and get some free Slurpees? And I was like, what are you, what? Why? And then I realized, and they'd be like, Apu, like Apu owns a 7-Eleven and all Indians work at a 7-Eleven. And, you know, and so I had to figure out how to like, how to recover from that. So I used to make fun of people or joke around it. I'd be like, hey, just to let you know, the guy who's working at the 7-Eleven right now, the Indian guy, he's actually a pre-med student. He was a doctor in India and he's trying to bring his family over here. So he's actually um, a a medical doctor working at 7-Eleven. You might want to be careful because when you have a heart attack, he's going to be the guy that's doing open heart surgery on you. You know, um, but it's like those are the types of of things that um, I kind of personally just experienced growing up that I just um, that was ch- that was challenging. It was a type of racism. It was a type of prejudice um, kind of, you know, uh, ideology uh, that for me, it was just like, I got to get over it. I got to get through it, you know. And so which also honestly, as a as a as a confession, Preston. It also made me a bit complicit through omission uh, when I saw other issues of racism, you know, that were taking place. Because and remember we talked earlier of like this this fear in I think the Indian community, like keep quiet or it's gonna it's gonna come back on us, you know. Um, and it was some of that, like man, as long as they're making fun of the Latino kid or if they're they're being you know mean towards this other group of people, if I'm in the clear, then it's okay, you know. And that that was challenging. And I bet yeah because. So many of the race conversations don't in, don't really involve specifically Indian people, unless you're under the broad umbrella of like people of color or something. So they're the unique cultural slash ethnic things that uh, Indian Americans bring to the table. Would, I, I would imagine would be kind of just left out of the discussion often, you know. Yeah. Which which I bet that difficult, you know, or, or the assumption that you know, in, well, they're all you know higher socioeconomic status, you know, generally. So they're probably fine or whatever, but like that doesn't, I don't know. I'm thinking out loud like that, that I could see where maybe your unique experience would be kind of left behind in in the race conversations, which, which is unfortunate. Um, And you, you actually nailed it even there. Like, I think with a lot of, a lot of different conversations, there's place for middle ground, you know, but you just described it. You're either like a doctor and an engineer and you're crushing it or you work at the 7-Eleven. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like there's, you know, you own a gas station, 
you know, and it's like, there's no, there's no like, like middle, middle ground or, or nuance to the conversation. I remember I was, um, I was asked to be a host of this kind of conversation on, on racial kind of injustice stuff. And I went out, um, to dinner with these guys that were speaking and, um, in the conversation, somebody had just said, cause it was like a black and white uh, situation, you know, about, uh, I think we were talking about reparation. I mean, all kinds of stuff that night. And, um, at one point, one of the guys looked at me and goes, yeah, but this doesn't involve you, Joel. Like, like, in fact, it's like, we got to keep the Latinos and Indians out of this conversation because it's not their issues. You know, and I just remember thinking like, oof, that's tough. That's a, that's a tough statement for somebody to make, or even to make to me, because I'm like, I wrote a dissertation that like on a, at a scholarly level, but really at a practical level of saying, listen, the heartbeat of God's um, ideal for his family is reunification, is reunion without the loss of, of your ethnic uh, uh, distinctives, you know? And it's like, I'm trying to champion and be here and be a supporting voice. But then when you're like, yeah, it doesn't involve you. Like, it's better for you to just be quiet and not be involved in this discussion it's almost like, man, that's, that's, that's a tough pill to swallow, you know, because like, I just got uninvited from a discussion that if it's not dealing with me today, it could deal with me tomorrow. You know, like a simple, here's another simple one, Preston. I, when I was traveling a lot in the airport, you know, and I like, don't share this often, but I was traveling a lot. And at this point I didn't have TSA pre-check, which I do now. Thank God. I love TSA pre-check, but I could tell you if my, and I have my beard out like pretty good right now. If my beard was out and if I made the intentional decision not to talk, if I was just quiet and sitting in line, I could almost tell you when the random check was going to come my way, you know, and then I would test it and I'd be like, well, I'm going to have like a a nice beard that's like trimmed down and I'm going to be really intentional of talking in line so that the gate, like TSA agents, they can all hear me, you know, And, and it was just, it was amazing how the random checks were much less, and this is around the time, you know, post 9-11, all of that taking place. And so there's, there's all kinds of complexity with that, but even that, that's a unique kind of, that was a, that was an experience of, of walking through that. Um, that was, that was challenging. Oh, that's it. Yeah. I was going to ask, I was wondering about your, when you mentioned earlier about traveling so much, you know, if that has been, if that's been an issue at all, um, you should, you should just grow it out really long and wear a turban or something and just mess with people. (laughs) eat some spicy food get all sweaty you know just see how many times. see what happens <laughs> yeah, yeah people oh man panic. that's super helpful man i yeah um what are some i so being part of a multi well i actually here's one, one more question along those lines as a mixed race couple you and your wife is that does that also present what, what are there any unique uh challenges oh my god uh, this with, is with like that? a whole um, this... i know it's becoming more common I, i'm so thankful for that yeah I, I think i can't wait to see what america looks like and 30, 40 years, you know? Um, yeah. Other, what are some unique challenges there? I mean, I mean, my goodness, that's like a whole different podcast. That's a whole different episode, uh, conversation of itself. My wife has a funny, uh, it's not even funny. It's just legitimate now is uh, Instagram handle called almost Indian wife. Uh, and so she just jokes like, you know, it's like, she's, uh, almost Indian. She's, she's working her way towards, uh, full, full acceptance there. Um, but one of the, some of the things have just been cultural acceptance on her, on her part. What are the, what, what is accepted or expected of her as a, as a white woman who married into, uh, an Indian family and kind of the, the culture there. But some of it is just like, and I think you've probably heard this a lot of places. It's like the way that she gets looked at sometimes when she's with the kids in target, it's like, are you the nanny? You know, um, oh, those kids are so cute. You know, um, are they yours? Like, did you adopt? Like, like just stuff like that. Where you're like, no, I birthed all, all four of these, these, these children are, you know, are mine and I, and I birthed them. And, um, and so that's been challenging, but honestly, the, the one that has been the most difficult, which we didn't expect is, um, for my children, my boys, we've got three boys, 12, 10 and eight, and then a little girl who's three. Um, it's how they identify themselves. So I remember one day my, uh, my youngest son comes into the house and he's mad. He's frustrated. And I'm like, Luke, what's going on? Is everything okay? And he just looked at me. He goes, if anybody asks, I'm Indian. 
And I was like, what? Like, dude, what's going on? And I guess like he got tired of like beginning of school, always having to say, I'm half Indian. I'm half white. I'm half Indian. I'm half. And so finally he, and he's darker skinned. So for him, it was just like, it caused way too many questions to say, well, you know, my mom's white and my dad's in, like all of that. So he's just like, I'm Indian. That's, that's, you know, and for my wife, it kind of made her feel a certain way. Cause she's like, well, wait a minute. You're also like hmm. half white, you know? And for me, like, I was like, yeah, that's, and my oldest son is much lighter and he's got a different experience with that. And so, um, of navigating like their mixed identity and seeing both things as these beautiful aspects of what makes them um, unique and special and and still fully in the image of God and um, and to be able to have the language to be able to dialogue that with their friends that are at these age groups is um, you know there's no parenting class that got us ready for for any of this um, so those are the kind of things that we've just been walking through but again one of the greatest things for us is that we're part of a community like at TC, you know, where this is not unique. This is not novel to us. Like one of our closest friends, um, you know, she's Latina and her husband's black. And so even with um, their daughter's hair and and navigating through that uh, and expressions of that, like we've got a community that's around us where we just feel like, man, we're not at this alone. We're in this together. And our kids have found that solidarity, which I think is super special to be able to have that within the family of God and say, like, this is how it ought to be, which sets the trajectory for how they relate to the world. And it's a, a witness of invitation, you know, like these are things that I think the world longs for. And we just want to present it to them so they can see that they're invited to take part of the beauty of what it means to be part of the multi-ethnic family of God. I, mean, I, love, I love that you, your family, your kids all have your, your Christian identity is rooted in a community that's very multi-ethnic. I think it'd be extra hard, right, if if the Christian community was, you know, very mono, uh, mono-ethnic, monochromatic. But that that's 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 a yeah, that's got to be at a really encouraging piece. Can you, we mentioned your church, you know, Transformation Church? Can you, for those who don't know the church, tell us how how big it is and maybe how how many, not that that's the only question we need to ask, but uh, just to get a picture of the community and uh, how many different ethnicities are represented there. Oh my uh, gosh. I don't even know what the current numbers are, but I mean, it's like, it, I, I just, what Britt and I all often say is when we walk into church on Sunday, it feels like the kingdom of God. Literally, it feels like revelation, like every tribe, tongue, um, and nation. And so we've got um, uh, multiple, and then it's also multi-generational press. And that's another massive part of this discussion that we don't often you know, talk about as much, but it's like, not only is it multi-ethnic, but it's multi-generational. It's the wisdom of the saints that is present in discipleship that is so important for us. You know, as my wife and I, as young parents, so that's taking place. TC is, um, gosh, I think... I have to get the current numbers from Durham, but we're over 3,500, you know, in, in attendance, um, three services. Um, it's growing. We're looking at, a, at, at multiple campuses at this point to see where we might be able to plant next. Durham has an incredible conference called um, the Round. Actually, it's called the Multi-Ethnic Table. Um, it used to be called the Round Table, um, but it's it's excellent where he kind of brings in and if you're a church pastor, a planter, and you want to kind of see how does this happen, you know, like how do we intentionally build not only a church culture, but a staff um, and from a ministry methodology standpoint, how does this look to have multi-ethnic theology played, played and fleshed out like on the ground, you know, um, it's a really great time where our staff actually comes in and does the teaching and we get to kind of walk through it. I think worship is, so, is some of the best. Uh, we have multi-ethnic worship that's included in that. Um, and so it's a lot of fun. Um, it's been fun to see Derwin, um, be able, and you know, Derwin's wife is white. He's a formal NFL football player. Um, and he's just a sharp dude, um, a doc, uh, a doctoral student from Northern seminary underneath Scott McKnight. I mean, just, he's, he's, he's a sharp, sharp guy. Um, and he's, yeah, I've got some reformed roots and he's consistently trying to convince me to, to buy into corporate elections. So that's an ongoing discussion in our chat. Well, I'll be out there in a few months, but, um, April, May, I think last Sunday in April or first Sunday in May. So, um, super excited. Been a bit of fan from a distance and Der I mean, Derwin's been, uh, Kind of like you said, you know, just kind of a, a mentor. Well, I, at first a mentor from a from a distance, a pastor from a distance, and now he gets to be you get to be actually under him. But um, 
Yeah, just such a gosh, I just can't speak more highly of the guy. He came out, spoke at our conference last year at the Exiles in Babylon, and just oh man, him and his wife came out. It was good seeing both of them and golly, just it's just an incredible man of God. I mean, one of those guys that he'll make time if I find ever. I mean, last summer uh, we we're just going through stuff as as a as a family, as a as a as a, uh, a wife and I, and you know, just yeah, asked for some advice on some things, and just immediately, just him, both him and his wife made time for us, and just yeah, incredible. So the thing I say about Derwin, um, and also my boss Lisa Turkers, who I work for, they're both um, they're both better people off stage than they are on stage. You know, um, they truly are um, better people off stage than they are even on stage, which is just a refreshing thing. Um, and Derwin, that's the testimony uh, of him. He's just a call away and um, lots of lots of tears together um, and lots of debates, you know, because he keeps trying to tell me that LeBron James is the greatest basketball player of all time. And I'm like, dude, really more than Jordan. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He but then he'll be like, why do we have to? This is the what he'll say, man. Why do we have to even compare the two? Why can't we let greatness live as greatness? And I usually respond, that's what people who can't make the argument that LeBron is the greatest typically say, you know? Um, but it's just a fun little thing. He's also an Android guy. I'm an iPhone guy. You know, it's like <laughs> our relationship itself is uh, is the remarkable grace of God that that we can be knit together the way that we are. So what? Okay. Uh, I I don't follow basketball at all. I I follow baseball. It's kind of the only sport I follow. Um, So no, hardly anything about basketball, but grew up like you, you know, eighties, nineties, Jordan was king of the universe. Um, And, and I, you know, I just recently watched a documentary, which, which was incredible. Um, And um, so I just, I mean, I just, you know, obviously LeBron just broke the all time scoring record. Yeah. Kareem's record. Um, Yeah. And, And he played, I mean, he played long. I think Jordan still has, the most points per game is that like that if you take the average yeah i, I mean think he's- yeah i mean this is where all the debate comes in it's like you know lebron comes straight from high school in in their jordan place college um lebron's longevity is is absolutely like unmatched you know I, here's the and i'm i'm going to try to be like i want i do not want to be dishonest in any way Preston. so like i want i want my theology to be honest i want my scholarship to be honest i want my passion of basketball and and mj to be honest and so here's the one thing that i'm going to say honestly uh that might push lebron over mj in my in my view if lebron actually plays with brawny in the nba together with his son in the NBA together, and he's still even half of like the output of what he's producing. That is spectacular. Mm-hmm. That that might that, that might do it for me. But uh, in terms of pure stats, I mean, you know, MJ six championships. Um, I mean, it's just two three peats. Never saw a game six in his entire career. Never had to leave. We don't talk about the Wizards um, situation. That's just um, that's like uh, not canonical in my mind. Um, but you know, it's like it's LeBron had to leave Cleveland to go win his first chip and be with the All Star like team. So, anyways, but LeBron's a great basketball player. I mean, just just it's hard to measure, but. Again, it is I'm way outside my area, but just the sheer dominance that Jordan had in his hey, to just take the the nineties or something, or even I mean late eighties, but like just in in terms of being a, a player that was kind of head and shoulders all around better than anybody else at the time. Um, and maybe would LeBron have the same, or 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 is it just is that where it kind of differs? Where Michael Jordan was just this kind of almost superhuman player when you take him at his best yeah just just absolutely dominating and again i don't i don't does lebron have that same and is this where the argument is like well yes but just not to the same magnitude as mj yeah i think lebron i think lebron built on the foundation of mj and he does it's but also the rules are totally different you have the hand check rule for mj homeboy scoring 100 points a game you know, like uh, off the free throw, like it's, it's insane. MJ had to like the brutality of playing uh basketball, the physicality of it was mad, like, totally different from what it is uh, today. Oh, so, yeah. I mean, you might even argue, I would make the argument that longevity played a, a part of MJ's career. He just took a beating, you know, the bad boys pissed, the bad boy Pistons just destroyed him in his body, which is why he had to bulk up towards, um, towards that first uh, three Pete. But the other thing too, is take a look at who Jordan dethrones Larry bird, 
uh, Magic Johnson. I mean, the only reason Hakeem Olajuwon ever wins a chip is uh, is because Jordan retired for two years. That was like the only option for those guys, you know? Patrick Ewing, like you take a look at these behemoths that in any other era by themselves, they're winning, they're legitimately competing and winning championships. But for those seasons, Jordan not only like knocked them out, but didn't even allow them to play in in the same playground as him, you know, um, versus LeBron. I mean, you just never know what's going to happen if he's going to show up or not. Is he a clutch player or not? Uh, you know, so it's, I think it's it's a little bit it's difficult to compare the two. But yeah, the time period that MJ played in was unique. What's what's Derwin's argument that LeBron is it, it's at the longevity? I mean, he's got the he's got the record. He's yeah, you know, longevity stats. He's got the record, which obviously stats can be interpreted any way you want, and it's on your side when you play for you know as many years as he, as he had. But also, I think just he's a. I think from a physicality standpoint, I would give this to LeBron. Phys, physicality. I mean, he is unmatched. You know, like he's downhill finisher the best all time without a doubt, you know? Um, so all of that. And I mean, if we were to go, if we were to get ethical as well in, in this conversation, like if we're going to go on court, off court, I mean, you can't compete with what LeBron is doing off court and his philanthropy and the schools and, you know, all okay. the things that, that he's kind of doing in that era. Some would make the argument though, that in the time and season that MJ was in, it wasn't, possible like th those weren't even realities for him you know and so actually him with nike uh and uh, the super bowl commercial like there's going to be a movie that comes out about his shoe basically with phil knight which looks amazing but it's like those become the foundations of what lebron is able to build off of today yeah he was um, jordan was a cultural icon that i don't know any athlete ever that Global. Has, oh my gosh yeah did you like the documentary the last dance i loved it loved it it was so good it was i was sad when it ended it was yeah it was so good yeah 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 it yeah. was excellent well we can we can keep <laughs> we kind of went different directions but joel um man it was great getting to know you a bit more and hearing about your work and we didn't even get into um maybe i'll have you back on um you know both of us are kind of in a journey researching what we think about women in church leadership. Um, I think we come from very similar perspectives and are asking kind of a lot of the same questions. Yeah. But we'll have to table that for another day. Uh, just love your your honesty and your um, your commitment to doing sound next to Jesus. So, um, yeah, man, thanks for your work, man. And thanks for uh, coming on Theology in a Rock. I appreciate it. An honor. Thanks, dude. Hey friends, have you been blessed or encouraged or challenged by Theology in the Raw? If so, would you consider joining Theology in the Raw's Patreon community? For as little as five bucks a month, you can gain access to a diverse group of Jesus followers who are committed to thinking deeply, loving widely, and having curious conversations with thoughtful people. We have several membership tiers where we where you can receive premium content. For instance, silver level supporters get to ask and vote on the questions for our monthly Patreon only podcast. They also get to see like written drafts of various projects and books I'm working on. And there's other perks for that tier. Gold level supporters get all of this and access to monthly Zoom chats where we basically blow the doors open on any topic they want to discuss. My patrons play a vital role in nurturing the mission of Theology in the Raw. And for me, just personally, interacting with my Patreon supporters has become one of the hidden blessings in this podcast ministry. So you can check out all of the info at patreon.com forward slash Theology in the Raw. That's patreon.com forward slash Theology in the Raw.